In the early hours of September 10, 1896, the sleepy town of Bloomsburg in Columbia County became the center of one of the most spectacular and diabolical murder plots ever concocted by the human mind. Poison, dynamite, and deadly microbes, these were the tools used by Clifton Knorr, the disgruntled son of a wealthy businessman hired by a prominent local lawyer to murder a former congressman and poison his own stepmother. Levi Waller was a leading citizen of Bloomsburg during the second half of the 19th century. Waller, a highly regarded lawyer and politician, was the son of a noted Presbyterian minister, while his wife was the daughter of Charles Buckaloo, the American ambassador to Peru. Despite Waller's success, or perhaps because of it, he had many rivals scattered throughout Pennsylvania. His chief nemesis was another successful lawyer by the name of Lloyd S. Winterstein. Waller and Winterstein had hated each other for years. The tension between the rival attorneys began, it was said, in a social feud that later carried over into the state's courtrooms. Winterstein's wife, Ada Brewer, ran in the same social circles as Waller, and the two wives apparently detested the very sight of each other. Together with his partner, Colonel Samuel S. Knorr, Winterstein and his law firm represented some of the largest companies and most influential citizens of the region, routinely squaring off against Waller and his clients. It was Colonel Knorr who had taken Winterstein, then a young man filled with ambition, under his tutelage and turned him into a talented lawyer. This close friendship led Knorr and Winterstein to make several business investments together. The pair acquired controlling interest of the Bloomsburg Iron Company in 1887. They also owned significant interests in other local companies, ranging from the Bloomsburg Car Company and the Bloomsburg Brass and Copper Company to the Keystone Machine and Foundry Company. However, it was Colonel Knorr and Lloyd Winterstein's involvement in the Bloomsburg Iron Company that kicked off the strange series of events that would soon capture the interest of newspaper readers all over the country. When Colonel Knorr passed away in 1889, Lloyd Winterstein gained possession of two-thirds of his partner's stock in the Iron Company. Winterstein wanted to obtain the remainder of the Colonel's shares, but there arose a significant roadblock, the Colonel's widow. Although they tolerated each other at social gatherings, Winterstein had never taken much of a liking to the Colonel's new wife. He believed that the only reason she had married his aging mentor and business partner was so that she could get her hands on Samuel Knorr's fortune. Widow Knorr decided to hire a law firm in order to protect her share of the Iron Company stock. Her choice of legal counsel was none other than Levi Waller. To say that the lawsuit was bitter would be an understatement. Winterstein and Waller had long despised each other as rivals, but now that Winterstein's fortunes were at stake, the legal proceedings reached a whole new level of acrimony. Curiously enough, the law offices of both men were located in the same building, and a private residence of Levi Waller was directly across the street from the home of the late Colonel Knorr. There was still another family member caught in the Tempest, the widow's stepson, Clifton Knorr. Though Clifton and his stepmother lived under the same roof, their relationship had always been strained. 
After the colonel's death, Ms. Noor became quite stingy with the family fortune, cutting off access to her stepson. This infuriated Clifton. As the colonel's only son, he considered himself the rightful heir to his father's wealth. Clifton Noor ingratiated himself to Winterstein, who often gave him money when his stepmother would not. Before long, Clifton became Lloyd Winterstein's unofficial personal assistant. The two men were bound by one shared trait, a murderous hatred of Levi Waller. The lawsuit over the widow's share of Iron Company stock and a division of the dead colonel's estate dragged on for months, and it eventually became clear to Winterstein by January of 1896 that Waller had the upper hand from a legal perspective. But rather than resigning himself to his fate, Winterstein vowed revenge. His immense pride would never allow him to accept defeat, for it was Colonel Knorr, the brilliant attorney, who had taught him everything he knew about the law. Losing the suit over his mentor's estate to his most hated rival was something Winterstein simply could not accept. The revenge plot was concocted in June. Clifton Knorr and Lloyd Winterstein met and discussed a plan to blow up Waller's home using dynamite with the lawyer and his family inside. Nor would be the one to plant the explosive. To sweeten the deal, Winterstein offered the young man $200 and promised him an additional sum of $5,000 as soon as the equity lawsuit was vacated. Nor agreed. By month's end, he had managed to steal five sticks of dynamite, along with fuse and blasting caps, from Armstrong's quarry near Bloomsburg. Clifton Knorr hid these items under a sidewalk. September 9th was chosen as the night to murder Waller and his family. The plans were finalized during a meeting between Knorr and Winterstein in Wilkes-Barre. Winterstein said that he hoped the dynamite would, quote, blow Waller to hell. Knorr returned to Bloomsburg, and at one o'clock in the morning, placed the explosive charge on Waller's porch and lit the fuse. Only the cap managed to explode thanks to a defect in the wiring. Waller, awakened by the bang, surmised that it was of no importance and went back to sleep. Nora gathered up the five sticks of dynamite and departed, deciding to make a second attempt later that night. He returned to the quarry, smashed the lock of the toolhouse, and stole six additional sticks, along with additional caps and fuse. Nor's second attempt, however, also failed to produce the expected results. Although the front of Waller's home was blown off, none of the occupants were injured. On Christmas morning of 1896, Clifton Nor was arrested in Reading by Detective William Henderson and committed to jail awaiting trial for the explosion. He was charged with throwing an explosive device with intent to destroy property and also with intent to take life. While in jail, Nor made a confession and implicated Winterstein. On Thursday morning, December 31st, Lloyd Winterstein was arrested on the charge of being an accessory. A preliminary hearing was held and Nor was called as a witness. He swore that Winterstein employed him to blow up Waller's residence. On February 1st, Knorr and Winterstein were indicted by a grand jury under seven separate bills charging them with attempted murder. 
In his desire to turn state's evidence, young Clifton Knorr told the jury that Winterstein had made numerous previous attempts to murder Waller, as well as to Colonel's widow. According to transcripts of the proceedings, Knorr stated that Winterstein first broached the subject of disposing of his rival in November of 1895. Lloyd Winterstein allegedly gave Knorr $10 to go to a neighboring town and purchase a revolver. Knorr was then instructed to loiter outside of Waller's home and shoot him as he made his way to his law office. Knorr claimed that he did as he was told, but discovered that Waller was out of town. Knorr claimed that Winterstein then came up with a plan to murder the colonel's widow. In December, Winterstein paid Clifton Knorr to purchase a bottle of poison. At the time, Knorr was living with his stepmother at 16 East 5th Street, directly across the street from the Waller residence. On two occasions, Knorr claimed, he slipped poison into his stepmother's teacup, but each time the cup was removed by a servant girl named Dora Moharder. When this plot failed, Winterstein turned his attention to diphtheria. Not taking measures to prevent it, of course, but to spread it. In January, Winterstein sent away to New York for deadly diphtheria germs which were to be introduced around the house in such a manner that Widow Knorr could not fail to contract the disease. Knorr placed the order and traveled to New York to pick up the bacteria. Apparently, in 1896, it was possible to purchase deadly bacteria without arousing anyone's suspicion. Clifton Knorr spread the germs around the house and all over his stepmother's clothing, but she never contracted the deadly disease. Dora Moharder, the servant girl, substantiated Knorr's confession when she took the witness stand. Dora, who had been employed by the Knorr family for nine years, said that in December of 1895, she had attempted to pour the widow a cup of tea, but found that there was a white powder at the bottom of the teacup. Without giving much thought to the mysterious powder, she threw out the cup and gave the widow a different one. According to Dora, on the following morning, while she was in the kitchen, the door leading to the dining room was open a crack. She saw Clifton enter the dining room and empty a white powder into another teacup. Dora disposed of this cup as well after Clifton left the room. By now, Dora was suspicious of the stepson's intentions, but didn't say anything. Clifton left for New York the next day. He returned three or four days later. Dora, who had now worked up enough courage to confront the young man, asked him what he had placed into the teacup. At first he denied having put anything into the cup, but he eventually revealed to Dora that the white powder was just something to settle her stomach. The servant girl was frightened. A few days earlier, Ms. Knorr had told her, Dora, I honestly believe I am poisoned. Nonetheless, Dora Moharder never went to the authorities to report her suspicions. One of the more memorable witnesses who testified against Winterstein was Sally Gast, who lived in a boarding house in Reading at the same address where Clifton Knorr rented a room after moving out of the colonel's home. Gast was known to offer her services from the same building, and had a reputation as a madam and call girl. The Philadelphia Times described her courtroom appearance 
during the Winterstein trial in May of 1897. Sally gasped, buxom and smiling, dressed in a pale lavender suit with white lace trimmings and wearing a profusion of jewelry, came upon the stand at 10 o'clock. Nobody asked her age, but she looks to be 30 and very well preserved. Gast corroborated Noor's confession. She said that she had first met Winterstein three years earlier when Noor brought him to the brothel on Cherry Street. Winterstein had visited the establishment seven times in 1896, three times before the explosion and four times after. Just a few days before the dynamite attack, a letter arrived for Noor and Sally Gast opened it. There was money inside. She gave Noor the letter, who read it, and then said to Sally, Here is ten dollars, Sally. Mr. Winterstein sent it, and I must go away. Sally Gast told the jury that Noor left the house and wasn't seen again until the Monday evening after the explosion. However, Noor had sent Gast a letter from Wilkes-Barre saying that he would be coming home soon. When Noor returned, he told Sally that there is hell up in Bloomsburg. He said that Waller's house had been blown up and that he was a prime suspect. He implored Sally to swear that, if anyone asked, he had never left Reading. But, as the jury would soon discover, women of ill repute usually make terrible witnesses. During cross-examination by Mr. Shields, one of the attorneys for the defense, Sally Gast admitted that she was known by at least three different names and that she obtained her livelihood by conducting a house of ill fame. Shields concluded his cross-examination by asking if she had anything against Lloyd Winterstein. Sally said that she did not. Why did you swear at the preliminary hearing that you were sore at Winterstein because he was trying to take Cliff away from you? Yes, I suppose I did, was Sally's response. The trial continued to drag on for three weeks. On June 12th, the jury was discharged. After 35 straight hours of deliberation, they could not agree on a verdict. It was one of the messiest and chaotic trials to ever take place in Bloomsburg. During the lengthy proceedings, three jurors had fallen ill, two of them suffering nervous breakdowns. This left Judge Ermintrout with quite a conundrum on his hands. Some might wonder why Winterstein did not request a change in venue, since it was a certainty that virtually every witness, juror, attorney, and even the judge himself was well acquainted with both Waller and Winterstein. However, this proved a brilliant stroke of genius by Winterstein, and his defense team consisting of Fred Eichler, J. H. Jacobs, Colonel Freeze, and Shields. The confusion and mayhem was all part of a deliberate strategy to muddy the waters of justice and produce a mistrial. But while Fred Eichler, who led the defense team, stated that the judge's decision to toss out the jury was practically a victory for the defense, another attorney on Winterstein's team, Colonel Freeze, was irate over Judge Ermintrout's decision. He stated that not only should the jury have not been discharged, but that every juror ought to be put in prison for a month. Freeze did not care to go through a whole new trial. The second Winterstein trial was set for September of 1897. Much to the relief of Colonel Freeze, the sequel would never take place. Immediately after a second trial was called, both sides scrabbled to reach some kind of settlement, which they did, and the drama was concluded. 
the terms of the settlement were quite bizarre. Winterstein and Waller had reached a gentleman's agreement whereby Winterstein consented to leave Bloomsburg and never return. Winterstein disposed of all his business interests and promptly moved to New York City, leaving Clifton Knorr to fend for himself. In December of 1898, Winterstein left the country and went to Cuba to engage in a new business enterprise. Lloyd S. Winterstein died in Hastings-on-the-Hudson, New York, on June 3, 1935, at the age of 36. By the time of his death, he had accumulated a vast fortune in real estate development along the Hudson River. Ironically, the wealth he left behind in Bloomsburg paled in comparison to the empire he created in New York. Agreeing to leave Bloomsburg was perhaps the best decision he ever made. Also ironic was the fact that Winterstein managed to outlive almost every other person involved in the infamous trial, including the presiding judge, prosecutor, and both Waller and Knorr, as well as all 15 of the attorneys who participated. The only person involved who was still living at the time of Winterstein's demise was the young servant girl of the Knorr family. Dora Moharder passed away in 1938 at the age of 68. If you enjoyed this podcast, look for my latest book, Pennsylvania Oddities, Volume 2, available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Walmart.com, or through the Sunbury Press website at www.sunburypressstore.com. The Pennsylvania Oddities podcast is written, produced, and narrated by Marlon Bressy. Theme music composed by Marlon Bressy. Sound effects courtesy of freesound.org. Find the Pennsylvania Oddities podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, Breaker, Overcast, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and anywhere else you find your favorite programs. New episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month.